Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, um, my name is Dave, and I serve as lead pastor here. And almost a month ago, um, our whole church went away on a retreat. And at the retreat, we met in Palos Heights, Illinois, at a college campus. And the theme of the retreat was recharge. And the idea was, just like each day, if you don't recharge your phone, no matter how powerful it is, it won't be available to you because it's out of juice. And I think for a lot of us, we went into the retreat feeling very much like our hearts and our spirits were at like 5%. You know when the little battery icon on your phone looks like that? And you know that no matter how much potential exists in this device, without battery power, there is no using it. And so we went into the retreat asking God to recharge us. And our our speaker, Pastor Seth, um, who came out to us from Hong Kong, he delivered a series of messages on four things which are means of grace which God gave us to recharge us spiritually. They were prayer and worship, mission, and community. I think those are four really important gifts God gives us to keep us going spiritually. And so sometimes after an event, you know, the the convictions and the blessings leach out of our hearts and we just move on with life and we forget what God did among us. And so in order not to let those things fall off the table, I've decided to preach those four topics again, building on the foundation that our guest speaker laid at the retreat. And we are on message number three of that series. This morning, we're going to look at how God recharges us through our mission. Now, that might seem like a strange thing because mission usually sounds to me like an assignment, like spiritual homework, work. And I don't know about you, but I think most people don't associate working with recharging or refueling. This past summer, my father retired after a 55-year career in medicine. Here's a picture of my dad laying on his cot in Vietnam. He uh, was a field surgeon in an allied mass unit, and so he took care of all kinds of injuries and wounds from the battlefield for both U.S. and South Korean soldiers, and some Canadian ones as well. And uh, that's where he cut his teeth as a surgeon, is seeing battlefield wounds. That was 55 years ago that he began his career in medicine, And this summer, we got to celebrate the close of the working phase of his life. Those are some of his closest friends. I don't know if we can do anything about the lights up in the front. Could we please? uh... Thank you. So those are his closest friends in this whole world. They all pretty much moved from Korea together, and they've been walking together for many, many years In the same Bible study group, no matter what church they belong to, they always walk together spiritually. And so we got a chance to call them all together and celebrate. 
And about a, and it was a great party. I mean, you know, 55 years of doing any one thing is pretty significant. But a week later, I met my parents for lunch. And um, I just asked my dad, how has it been? Because if I'm honest, I was going through enough stuff right around his retirement party that I would have loved to trade places with him. I was having fantasies about retirement already. I'm like, what would it be like to just be able to sleep as much as I wanted? To not have to wake up for anything? I could actually sit and read every book I own uninterrupted. I could watch, no, I could finish Netflix. <laughs> I wouldn't just watch it, I'd finish it. You know, and, and there's just, I, I just kept thinking, what would it be like to have nothing external to me obligating me and I could just do whatever I wanted? That's the, uh, that's really not a healthy place to park yourself, but if I could tell the truth, I wished I could be him. So I was expecting to hear, oh man, it's been amazing. I slept 30 hours in a row. But instead he said, you know, the first day of retirement, he woke up before 5 a.m. and had to consciously fight every fiber of his being not to get in the car and drive to the hospital just to make rounds and see people. And it was for me a stark reminder how important purpose is to the well-being of the human spirit. I mean, I thought that I would like to trade places with them and have no purpose for a while. To just exist. To pass the time, have fun, and rest. But what my dad reminded me of was that purpose is not a burden or a sentence. It is a gift from God. And you take away a person's purpose, and after a while, life begins to feel truly meaningless. So then, of course, uh, I, I try to pastor my dad a little. I'm like, okay, dad. So then, what is your new purpose in your retirement years? I mean, if you're missing medicine as your purpose, what's your new purpose? And he thought about it for a moment. He said, you know, I've been thinking about that all week. My new purpose is to really study God's word and take my faith more seriously, and really grow in it. And that's saying something, because to this day, I think he still studies the Bible more than I do, and I'm a pastor, so it's shameful. But every morning, he is up before dawn, before the sun, reading his Bible. But he said, I really want to read more books and grow in my faith. And in my last years on earth, I want to be fully devoted to the ministry of personal evangelism. He felt like too much of his life, he was inside the church and really now wants to lead other people who are far from God to Christ. I'm super thankful to have a dad like that. And I want to tell you that one of the greatest gifts that we can give our children, if you're a parent, is the gift of living out a Christ-centered purpose and a real faith in front of your children, not as an object lesson, not to make a point, but because this is what you believe God to be, and this is what your whole life is about. And when you see it, it's impossible to really fake something like that. A lot of kids grow up knowing that their parents bring them to church, but I think only a small number of people grow up watching their parents embody and model out a faith that is alive. Thankfully, For the kids in our church, I think there are many examples where you're seeing real faith lived out in front of you. That is the greatest 
gift I think we can give our children. Even if you can't pay for their college or set them up for success in every other way, if you can model real faith and a Christ-centered purpose in your own life, it's one of the greatest blessings you can give to your next generation. And I was just reminded, thinking about my dad's retirement, that purpose is one of the great gifts that God gives us. And there is a kind of loss when our purpose is taken away and a refueling that happens when we re-grasp a central purpose for our lives. I don't have a lot of time this morning, so I want to uh, zoom forward here, and I want, to, I want to show you two things that having a sense of mission and embracing our mission does to refuel our spirits. And the first is I, we're fed by our mission. There's a hunger in us that only feeds on service to God. In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples had walked to the, the, this village in Samaria. And John chapter 4 records one of the most beautiful evangelistic encounters in Scripture. I have studied this passage, John chapter 4, so much. I think it might be one of the passages I have studied the most in the Bible. I've had a privilege of preaching it probably 40 times now in my life. And still I see just how profound this encounter is between Jesus and this woman. And in this encounter, Jesus slowly reveals himself to her, and she sees, her eyes are opened up, and this is not a woman who's a likely candidate to be religious or spiritual, and yet she has this profound moment of awakening, and her whole life is turned around. Now, all of this happens while the disciples, Jesus' whole crew, had gone into town on a food run. Because they had walked a long distance, it was the heat of day, they were hot, they were thirsty, they were hungry, and they were tired. And you know, one of the greatest blessings is to eat a good meal when you're really hungry and tired. Amen. Have you ever been so hungry you had to decide, do I want to eat or sleep? And when you finally eat, it fills your belly and it fills your heart, and there's something really satisfying about the gift of food when you're hungry. So the disciples were out looking for food, and when they return, they return just in time to see this woman so excitedly just run off back to town to tell everybody in in the village all about this man that she had met. Now, the disciples are still in grocery run mode. They probably brought back, I don't know what kind of food, I don't think they had fast food restaurants, but they probably scrounged up some food in town. They brought it back and they said to him, Rabbi, eat something. How many of you teenagers are tired of your mom telling you to eat something? It seemed like my mom was nonstop trying to get me to eat. And the truth is, I don't really, I'm not that much of an eater. And so it was annoying to be constantly told, eat something, eat something, eat something. Most of the time, I would have rather played or slept than eat. That's why I am this size. I think if I had eaten more, maybe I'd be at least two, three inches taller. Who knows? But they're telling him, eat something. And he says to them a very strange thing. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, because they're constantly missing the point, could someone have brought him food? 
Because like, what's the point of sending us into town run, food run, if you're going to eat anyway? And he said, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Just like food satisfies so deeply when you're really hungry and tired. It gives you a burst of energy. It makes you literally feel filled by something you need. When we're feeling depleted, it's normal to think, to assume, that what I need is rest or play or food or drink. That when we're feeling drained, it's natural to assume what we need most is to take something in. But what Jesus says is, There is a kind of depletion which rest and food and play and drink cannot satisfy. That in the most counterintuitive way, when we're spiritually depleted, one of the best ways to be filled up is not to take something in, but to pour something out. What he said is that I have food which fills my spirit And that food is to engage fully in the mission which God the Father gave me and to finish that work. It's not to just have a season of doing it furiously, but to to let that calling define my whole life so that it's the single-minded purpose with which I live out my days on the earth. I think we all know that there's truth to that because there's a kind of feeling that I get when I do rest I sleep, I eat, I play, and I do get a little filled, and that depletion, that emptiness feels a little better. The tank kind of goes up. But there is a deeply satisfying spiritual replenishing that happens sometimes when I'm out there on the edge, giving God my very best, pouring out everything, and even though it's draining, all work is draining, some work replenishes us. All work depletes us. But some work fuels our spirit. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you know experientially what I'm trying to describe here. Because it's weird. You go on these mission trips where there's no comfort. The schedule is jam-packed. You're being pushed all day long. You swear you're not going to make it till bedtime. You're so tired. And yet, at the end of the day, though your body is beat, your heart is so full. Right? I mean, you guys who we were together in Tuba City not too long ago, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. Oh my gosh, at the end of this long day, a prayer meeting on top of everything. And yet, somehow, at the end of the day, though you fall asleep before your head hits the pillow, your heart is overflowing. And you're not sure how you made it through all of that, but God is fueling you. I think it's important to remember that there's not just one solution to every need. That sometimes when you're empty, what you need to chase after is not to be fed or to fill or to rest, but to focus on the calling which God has given us and pour ourselves out in serving him. Sometimes, at the end of a long day filled with meetings and work, I look at my calendar and I go, oh man, shoot, I forgot, I have this mentoring meeting at 8.30 p.m. And everything in my flesh is saying to me, just say something came up. Tell a white lie, cancel it, go home, sleep. But I go, and it's amazing to me how each time I go, 
I walk away floating on air. I'm so filled up by the time I spend with the leaders at our church, sitting across the dining table, hearing about where their hearts are, what God is teaching them, how they're learning more about him. And even as we talk through their struggles and I see the way that they're fighting to process in a way that honors God, it feeds my heart. It fills me up. And I leave that meeting drained on one level, but filled up on another level. Now, am I talking just to myself? Do you guys, can you identify? Have you ever had that feeling where you're so exhausted and you still are giving your last little bit, and though you're drained, you're filled? I think that's what Jesus is describing, is what keeps him going is not just the regular fuel of a mammalian life, but what keeps him going is a nonstop focus on the purpose God gave him for his life. Let me tell you another way that engaging fully with our calling and our ministry replenishes and recharges us. This is an aspect that I think is so missing in church today. Most of us, we learn a lot, but what's really missing is the inspiration factor. I believe that when we fully engage in our mission, one of the things that we regain, that recharges us, is a sense of awe. A sense of awe. In Luke chapter 10, there's a a scene where Jesus, on top of the 12 that were his closest inner circle, raised up 72 other followers, and he sends them out into the world. And he says, there are places I'm going to go to do ministry. I'm going to visit soon. But I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead of me, two by two in pairs, and set the table for me. Go into those towns and villages that I'm going to visit and begin proclaiming the kingdom and healing the sick in my name. So he sends them out. But I want you to know this is not exactly an ideal ministry assignment. The circumstances in which Jesus sends these guys out, if we advertise the mission trip at our church under these same circumstances, I don't know if we'd have any takers. Listen to the way he does it. He sends out 72 people, but he only sends them out in pairs, so they're not going out really in teams. They just have one other partner, and here's the assignment. He says to them, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Now, that's not a... An, That's not a statement that breeds optimism. What he's saying right off the bat is, there's more work out there than people to do it. It's going to feel overwhelming. Have you ever felt, when you look at the world and see something that's really off, just completely overwhelmed by it, you felt like a lone voice, like the only one who cares about this, and you're going to go, why does nobody else care about this? Why does it feel like it's such an uphill climb to get anyone else to be motivated, engaged, convicted, even upset about this thing? Why does it feel like there's so much to do and so few people who even care about it? Do you ever feel like that? I, come on. I know you guys felt because you've told me. Many of you come up to me and go, nobody else cares about this. I'm kind of discouraged. And I know that feeling. Jesus is sending these guys out and he says, there is so much to do. And there are so few people who are willing to do it. And he sends them out knowing they're going to be overwhelmed. And he says to them, when you feel that, well, don't go tell the, well, you can tell, you can tell the pastor, that's okay. We'll, we'll do what we can. But the truth is, he says, when you see that and you're overwhelmed, tell the Father. 
Tell him to raise up people who care. And in the meanwhile, while you're waiting for him to move others, you be moved yourself. Don't wait until there's a team at the church who does it. If you care about prison ministry and there's no prison ministry team, you be our prison ministry. You tell God the Father, raise up other people because it's overwhelming how much need there is and how few people care about it. But until you raise up others, I will answer the call and I will be out there on the edges serving you. So he sends him into an overwhelming assignment and he says there won't be enough help. But you keep doing it and ask me to raise up more people. And then he says, further encourage them, now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. So he says, not only will it be overwhelming work, you won't have a lot of help out there. People are going to be hostile to you. You're going to face opposition all the time. Have you ever felt that as well? Where you're out there trying to do what is good and what is right, and all you're getting back is hostility. When I first became a Christian, I tried to lead a number of my school friends to Christ. And I learned very early on in my life as a Christ follower that evangelism in high school is really, really, really hard. Youth group, amen? You get a, a fist bump? Man, I was so ridiculed. And then even in my adult life, when I wasn't a pastor and I was working in the secular world for about four years, everybody in all these companies after about a month started calling me Preacher Bob or or preacher Dave, because I was the only person who would talk about faith and they were uncomfortable with it. So I don't think they were being hostile per se, but they were being sarcastic. Okay, here comes preacher Dave again. And I have to tell you, it felt really isolating. It made me feel really alone. And so Jesus is sending them out saying, I'm sending you, but don't expect a red carpet welcome. And then he further says, don't take any money with you. Not even a traveler's bag. In other words, you're going on a vision trip, but uh, empty your pockets and don't bring any luggage. Well, how are we supposed to buy food? And what if I need to change my nasty shorts and, you know, things like that? And he goes, don't worry about it. I will provide for you through other people. Don't even take an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. I, I almost want to take... Jesus, the seminary, and go, Jesus, you, you need a seminar on how to set up a good ministry outing. This is the worst way to do it. There's no resources. There's no backup materials. You're sending them out in an overwhelming assignment in a hostile environment, and you're telling them they don't even get to bring money or luggage. Everything they're going to do out there, they're going to have to rely on other people and on your provision. Do you ever feel like You're trying to do what God put on your heart to do, and you keep coming up empty. There's just not enough resources to get the job done. And then he says, don't stop and greet anyone on the road. That's another way of saying, hey, this is not a social road trip. Stay focused. Stay on mission. Say hi to people. Don't be a jerk, but don't sit there and dilly-dally along the road. You're not on vacation. You're on a mission. Stakes are high. There's a lot to be done. People need the truth of the gospel. When you're out there on this assignment, stay focused. Don't let your mind wander or your heart stray from the central purpose. So no money, 
no luggage, no socializing, an overwhelming assignment, and a hostile environment. And then he says, I'm like, Jesus, stop. I don't think we're going to get any takers. When you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. And if those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. Now, this question usually splits every room that I speak in, but how many of you, when you travel, would rather stay at a hotel on your own terms than be a house guest in someone else's house? Yeah. I think for a lot of people, there's a, there's, there's a fundamental discomfort in depending on other people, imposing ourselves on other people. And if you have to do it, it's easier if at least you distribute the burden and let a number of different people take care of you for a little while. But what he says is when you go into a village or a town, find a person of peace, someone who welcomes you open-heartedly, sees that you work for God and are willing to put you up, and don't leave their house. You stay and impose yourself on that one family the whole time you're there. That's a little uncomfortable for me to hear. And I don't know about you, but I have been a house guest, and I'm learning this now because the truth is, though I'm an extrovert, when I travel, I do actually prefer to have my own room, my own privacy, my own schedule. I don't want to be the person who's a burden on other people, but I'm learning just how wonderful it is to be the guest in someone else's house and receive their hospitality. But I will confess to you, it's not my nature to want that. And so he says to them, when you're out traveling, you don't even get a place to rest your head at the end of the night with no one bothering you. Even at the end of a long day of work, you got to make conversation and know that you are an outsider in someone else's house. And that's the way it's got to be. At the close of all this, he says, now, if you enter a town and it welcomes you, Eat whatever is set before you. Stay there. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into the streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. So there's two ways that they can proclaim that message, the kingdom of God is near. Either it's an open-hearted invitation or a dire warning. Either way, he gives them this really difficult assignment. He says, once you get through all of that, that's just the circumstances in which you'll do the ministry. Here's your assignment. Heal sick people and preach. And here's why that's so hard, is because that's what Jesus had done, and they had watched all this time. Jesus was the one who healed people. Jesus was the one who preached. And now he's saying that you guys go out and do what you've watched me do the whole time. And if people don't welcome you, you stand outside the village and shout, we tried. Whatever happens now is on you. See you later. This is not an easy assignment. And I don't know about you, but if that's the way Jesus called me to go out and serve, I would, my expectation would be, This is going to be the worst trip of my life. The absolute worst trip of my life. I'm going to go into an overwhelming assignment in a hostile environment with no resources. 
I don't even have a whole team. I just got this dude who's going to be my other half of the pair. And we're going to have to go and try to do stuff that only Jesus has done before. I mean, they're not doctors. So when he says heal the sick, he's saying pray for people and expect miraculous intervention. What would you expect their experience to be like? And in what condition would you expect to find these people when they return from this trip? Luke ten seventeen it says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. See, they went out on the toughest assignment under the most unfavorable circumstances. And I would expect to read in Luke 10, 17, the 72 barely crawled back to town and said, Jesus, please don't do that to us again. That was the worst couple weeks of my life. I mean, I've had experiences like that where I thought, I'm not going to make it to the end of this. I've been on mission trips where I was not allowed to bathe for seven days. Maybe that was harder for the other people than for me, but... You're just so uncomfortable. You feel like your skin is, you know what I'm saying. It's like just everything is gross. You're eating nothing that you want to eat. You hardly sleep. And you think, there's no way I'm going to come back with a positive testimony. And yet somehow, again and again, this is the experience of those who follow Jesus. Is no matter how hard the assignment is, if we pour ourselves into serving God, Joy fills us. And here's the basis of their joy. They're saying, it was crazy out there. Though it was a hard trip, we saw something that shook us. We saw power out there. We didn't just do ministry with words. But when we commanded demons, they fled. Somewhere out there on the edge, as we took a risk and we obeyed you, crazy things happened that don't normally happen to us. We saw the presence and the power of God right in front of us. And I'm not sure we would have seen that, Jesus, if we hadn't gone out and obeyed you when you called us to go. You know, as a Christian, some of my great memories are from a church service where God meets us and we're caught up in a spirit of revival. But some of my greatest memories and experiences as a Christ follower have happened way out on a limb on the edge of radical obedience taking a big risk, making a costly sacrifice, not knowing how I was going to make it through the day and believing he would get me through it, being incredibly uncomfortable, full of fear, and yet it's in those places that I saw some of the most amazing things happen. And I keep thinking as I see those things, what would would I have missed had I listened to my flesh and not accepted the call of God to serve him? Some of my greatest moments of seeing God show up happened when I was out on a limb, trusting and serving him. And I think that's true for many of us. And I wonder if it's true for many of us in, in distant memory, but not in the recent past. Has it been a while for you since you felt that tug on your heart to take a risk and to serve God and said yes instead of, well, maybe next time. I want you to know that sometimes it's right there under the worst of circumstances 
that you experience God the most. Over 30 years ago, I was a college student, and I think I've, I've shared this story a long time ago with some of you from, from the pulpit. But, but my parents told me that they would pay for me to go backpacking through Europe with my friends. Awesome. That's a pretty nice offer. And so I was all set to go, and then the youth pastor from the, my home church called me and said, hey, we need counselors for the youth group retreat this winter. I'm sorry, this summer. And will you come and be a counselor? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where two really good things are being asked of you. One of them is really fun, and the other one is the right thing to do. And I got to tell you, I really, really wrestled with that. It was not an easy decision to make, but in the end, I said to the Lord, fine. I'm sure Europe will still be there another time, but I will go and be a counselor at this youth group retreat. And it was an amazing experience. And I felt like God was using me during that retreat. And, you know, here's a crazy thing about it. As, as, and I, I, I met Eugene Chung. You know, he was the, you know what, where's Eugene? Where are you, where are you sitting, Eugene? <laughs> he was younger than Nathan is today. And I had the privilege of praying with him as he trusted Jesus for the first time in his life. I got to lay my hands on him and pray as he took his first steps toward a lifelong relationship with Jesus. Who could imagine that over 30 years later, he'd be leading worship at the church where I'm the pastor. That's crazy to me. But I got to be there for that moment. And we're not just friends. We're like truly brothers. And I think I would have missed that going from roach-infested hostel to roach-infested hostel in Europe. Now, in the years since, I have been to Europe. It's all right. <laughs> it's great. But I wouldn't trade that moment of praying with Eugene for anything. It's a different kind of filling than a wonderful vacation. And maybe you've had that experience of binge-watching Netflix for like 10 hours or playing a video game for 10 hours, and it's just like no one's bothering you. are like, I'm in heaven. Nobody's bothering me. I have nothing to do. But at the end of it, what do you feel? There's a kind of satisfaction, but there's also a kind of weariness, an emptiness that still is there. Because not every emptiness can be filled with rest and play and food. There is a kind of emptiness in us that is only filled by experiencing the presence and power of God at work. They took a risk And they went out without their master, and they said, all right, there are sick people. Let's try. And they, in an act of faith, prayed for the sick, and the sick were healed, and it sent shivers up their spine. And the awe and the wonder that they they felt filled them with joy. I'll close with this. Um, Towards the end of his message at the retreat, Pastor Seth showed a picture that has been messing me up ever since the retreat. It's a painting called Who Cares by Mauricio Palacio. He read the story of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, 
William Booth had a vision of the world as a stormy ocean. And in this ocean, many people were perishing. They were drowning. But there was a rock in the middle of the ocean and a platform built at the base of the rock. And if you could make it there, you would be saved. And many had made it onto the platform while right in front of them, others were struggling to survive. And he said that some were jumping into the water heedless of their own safety to save others. And some, just by sheer grace and mercy of God, had swum hard and found their way to the platform on their own. He said, I didn't know which one of those things made me happier, that some got saved or that others would be willing to dive in just to save others. But then he said he had this vision that that platform is the church And on that platform, already safe and sound are so many who are caught up in a million other things and are heedless to the drama unfolding right in front of their faces. I've shared my convictions about this painting with a number of you, and I I can't stop looking at this picture and thinking, God, please don't ever let our church be like that. I mean, it's not wrong to sing songs, preach sermons, make art, fall in love, work out. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening on that picture. I love the dude with the boombox on his shoulder. You can tell how long ago this painting was painted. It's not that there's something wrong with those things, but it's how inappropriate that obsession with other things looks in the face of this really serious drama that's right under our noses. I think it's a blind spot for me because most of my life is lived in church world. I've been asking God to show me how I can spend more time rubbing shoulders with people who are not in church world. Because I think when you spend too much time in church world, you forget that there's a lot of people going through the same garbage, the same struggles we face every day, but there is for them no hope being held out, no real peace that's available. Many are starving for real community, for good news, just a little bit of hope. Now, I know that that doesn't erase or minimize the struggles we have as Christians in the church. But let's remember that every struggle we endure as Christians, we go through standing firmly in safety on the platform. And sometimes I think the reason that those dramas and struggles are so overwhelming is because we look at the struggle and forget the eternal perspective that gives us a little bit of clarity. It's when we engage the world around us and see real need without the real hope and peace of Jesus, we realize how high the stakes are. In our church, we try to do a lot to reach out to the world around us. And there's a way to do that 
that is going through the motions. And there way, there's a way to do that that has our eyes fully open, our hearts fully open, our arms fully open. And it's sometimes in that place of stepping out on a limb, taking a risk, being stretched, stepping into something where there's no, where there's no help, it's overwhelming, you're under-resourced, totally dependent on other people and on the grace of God. It's there on the edge of the most unlikely situations that you see the power of God. You reclaim that sense of awe without which a lifetime of faith is impossible. I'm so glad this year I got to go to Tuba City. I loved watching our youth group out there. And I think being there in person and watching, I understood why the ministry there has such a profound effect on the students when they return. I want to challenge each of us to open our hearts to that pull of God right now. I don't know in what way he will invite you to step into your mission, to embrace again the call he's put on your life to live for others and not just yourself. Christian life is meant to be more than surviving our struggles. There are many people who need to find their way home to a God who loves them. And it will almost never be safe or easy or comfortable jumping into that. But it's in that place that our hearts come alive again. We feel so much of what spurred us on in the early stages of our faith. I'm going to ask you to bow and pray with me. See, when, when a pastor preaches a message... A general message is going out to everybody. But in this quiet moment when we listen for God's voice, a very personal message often goes out to you. I'm trusting that God will talk to you right now and begin opening your heart to the calling he's placed on your life. It doesn't mean you'll pack your bags tomorrow and go to the farthest parts of the world. But it might mean that in some small but concrete way, he wants you to say yes to him. So let's just leave a moment of quiet and invite God to speak and pull out your heart.
Has it been a really long time since you've experienced awe in your journey? Felt the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Has Christianity just become a faith built up of words and ideas? Has it been a long time since you've experienced the power and the presence of God in a way that just grabbed your heart? God meets us that way in a lot of different settings, but hear this. Maybe the way he wants to give you that again is as you embrace your call to serve him. As you embrace your mission, your purpose in this world. So God, we pray that you will continue to speak to us. Each one of us in our story, our own individual lives. We also pray that you will continue to speak to us together as a church. Don't let us become a calloused, oblivious, distracted church standing on the safety of a platform watching a city roiling with need and doing nothing about it. Show us yourself. Show us how loved we are and then send us in your love to the world around us. As we embrace our mission and our calling, feed our hearts. Give us back a sense of awe and wonder and joy in our Christian lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.